Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. It's up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Ha. We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment. Tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Hello, is anybody out there? I know you're media, but you're also a human being. Let's connect. It's early. I do understand that. So, um, first, 
I want, it, it's not lost on any of us, the irony of today, that as we release a report to address harms across generations, multifaceted harms, that at the same time the Supreme Court has decided that affirmative action is um, not appropriate for this country. I would encourage the Supreme Court to read the interim report. I would encourage them to read the final report and to understand that the legacy of enslavement, the ongoing harms, are with us to this very day. And so this country is disingenuous. First, they used race to exclude us. And now, they're refusing to use race to include us. So I wanted to just give you a very, very quick update about what has the task force accomplished. This is an historic body with an historic body of work. And so what have we done over the last two years? We have held 15 hearings, most of which were two days long. We have prepared a final report that includes over 115 different reparations recommendations that are aligned with the 12 categories of harm defined in our interim report. As of June, or as of yesterday actually, we have been able to show that perhaps the Pew poll is not fully reflective of the attitudes of America. Why do I say that? Thanks to the hard work of Member Tamaki and Lisa Holder and other members of the task force, we have been able to compile over 302 organizations, some national, some California specific, that are endorsing the work of the, of the task force. 302 organizations, including organizations like Advancing Justice Asian Law Caucus, the Chinese for Affirmative Action, the Los Angeles and San Francisco County Bar Associations, the Weingart Foundation, the California Wellness Foundation, the NAACP at the national level, the National Urban League at the national level. The list goes on and on. I would encourage people, go to supportreparations.org and read the letters of support. It gives a very different picture about this country's readiness to confront the challenges of race in this country, something we have never done. So what else, as I conclude, has the task force been able to do? We developed a compendium of racist California laws and cases, thanks to the hard work of members Tamaki and Holder. We have, uh, and what they did was surveyed over 58 California sup Superior Courts and District Attorney Offices and 11 City Attorney Offices, revealing the lack of consistency and the discretion in what is collected and the absence of data making it difficult to evaluate claims of racial discrimination in the criminal justice system. In collaboration with the Ralph Bunch Center at UCLA, we were able to do community engagement. We held 17 listening sessions across the state that included 867 participants and coupled with that, we did a, a statewide poll, a random sample poll coupled with a community survey and surveys of the participants in the listening sessions. Over 4,300 people participated in those polls and surveys. 
The results have been published in a scholarly journal article. But one of the things I want to lift up from that report is, again, it is in contrast to the Pew polls that people often will cite. So 60% of Californians support some form of reparations in this country. The time has come. America must step up. It's not just the well-being of people of African ancestry that is on the line. It is the very heart and soul of this country. If America is to be who she professes to be, then she has to do the right thing. And this time, in this generation, otherwise, I truly worry about democracy. I don't remember who said it, but the basic point I want to end on is that racism is incompatible with democracy. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's an honor and privilege to be here before you today um, at the last hearing of the California Reparations Task Force. As you all know, uh, this illustrious nine-member California Reparations Task Force, we have been working dil diligently over the course of two years, not only to study uh, the innumerable atrocities against the African American community, uh, with special consideration for those who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, but obviously we also have been working very diligently to develop uh, numerous uh, policy prescriptions uh, to uh, end uh, what we consider to be the lingering badges and incidents of slavery um, in California. We also have recommendations in our final report that are um, you know, targeted to the Congress and to Biden administration as well. So I'm here before you today to say, give you a, a preview of what we will uh, be discussing at our final hearing. Uh, we will have 30 minutes of public comment, then we'll have 30 minutes of personal testimony where we've actually invited know three Californians who would be eligible for reparations in the state uh, to share their personal stories about the various different harms that they've endured um, in the state of California. Uh, namely, we'll be hearing from Elmer Fonza, we'll be hearing from Yvette Porter Moore, and we'll, we'll be hearing from Marion Johnson. Um, after a personal testimony, you'll be hearing some reflections um, from each of the nine members of the task force. You'll also be hearing some reflections from the California Department of Justice who assisted us um, in this work. Um, and then afterwards, you'll have myself and Vice Chair Brown formally deliver the final report uh, to elected officials uh, to, symbolic, to symbolic, symbolically represent the formal passing over um, of our work uh, to the legislature. Um, and from there, it will be up to the legislature to turn our policy proposals into actual reparations legislation uh, so that the material conditions and lives of African Americans, particularly those who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, actually change for the better. Um, the last note I'll say, and I'll hand it over um, to my other task force members, uh, today, as you all know, uh, the Supreme Court struck down uh, race-based preferences in our admissions um, in affirmative action. Um, Coincidentally, on the day that the task force has our last hearing, uh, my only note is to say our work remains unaffected um, largely by that decision because of the wisdom um, that we had in consulting with legal experts like UC Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who predicted this outcome today. And that's why our, most of our policy prescriptions are not race-based, but they're based on lineage. Um, they are for those who are descendants of slaves. 
So again, um, we made the, the right decision um, because of the wisdom and the wherewithal we had to consult with um, expert witnesses like Dean Erwin Chemerinsky and Secretary Weber, um, who pretty much told us um, who she had in mind when she authored AB 3121, and that are African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Dr. Shirley Weber, California Secretary of State, and I want to welcome you to the uh, March Hong Yu building uh, that houses the offices and the programs of the California Secretary of State. Uh, I'm honored to be here with you, and I want to thank the task force for its diligence and its truly hard work. Uh, this is groundbreaking uh, a work that they've done uh, in the nation that has oftentimes denied its, its responsibility for slavery and the impact of slavery on the lives of others. And so it's good to have you here. I want to thank the task force and nine of them who've worked very, very hard to make today day possible. I also want to thank my good friend uh, Rob Bonta, the Attorney General, because at the time when I wrote this bill a couple of years ago, we placed it into the Attorney General's office in his hands to make sure that he would administer the task force and make sure that the meetings occurred and the reports and, and assisted in, the, in terms of writing the, the task force, the recommendations themselves. So I'm really pleased that the Attorney General has been a partner in this and has worked very hard with us. So I want to thank him and his staff for that. It has not been easy accomplishing this task in terms of arriving to where we are. Uh, when we, I decided some years ago, two years ago, that we would actually take on the challenge of reparations. It was because I felt very strongly that California, if any state could do it, it would be California. That this effort had been tried many times at the federal level, but because of the complexity of the politics of this nation and its resistance to uh, any kind of change or activity with regard to African Americans, it had failed many times in terms of when it had been proposed and had not been supported. California was able to do it in less than a year. We proposed a recommendation for the task force, and in less than a year, we got it through both houses and signed by the governor. Uh, the work has been difficult, it has been hard, but it has been enlightening. And I hope those of you who get a chance to look at the report, whether it's the uh, first report or the final report, you will see that it was important for us to do California. And it was important because so often when I was asked, when I was writing it, people said, California? Why California? And the issue often is why not? Because slavery in this nation went across the entire nation. People didn't just remain in the South. And the policies and the laws of this nation affected every state and many places beyond the state. And so it was important that we let people know that reparations is due whether you're in Mississippi or you're in California, that reparations is due, that the harm has been done, and we need to begin to repair the harm and stop patching it up as we have done for many, many years without any effort that's there. As mentioned, we all heard this morning about the Supreme Court and affirmative action. We fought that battle with Prop 209, with Proposition, I think, 16 was it this past time. We fought that battle here in California many, many times. And I still am a firm believer in affirmative action. But at some point, African Americans have to get an opportunity and they must get justice. And so this is a harm-based program that talks about the harm that's done and the responsibility to repair it. You will see many things in this report as this group has worked for many, many, many months talking about all of the difficulty that has been in terms of how you do reparations. But the good thing is that you will see is that reparations is not an aberration. It is not something that's unusual. It is not something that is unreasonable because so many have gotten reparations in this country and in the world. And it's the one thing that people realize that when you have done harm, you have a responsibility to correct it and to make sure it never happens again. 
We have not done reparations for African Americans. We have done them from others, but we have not done it for African Americans who have probably suffered the most harm in this country. So I'm really pleased that you're here today. Our office is available and has been available to the, uh, to the task force during this process that Secretary of State's office has. I want to thank my staff that has worked very hard uh, attending all of the hearings, making sure that I get all the reports and all the information. I'm very proud of what we've done. We are excited about the, uh, the California Legislative Black Caucus. At the time when I authored the bill, I was chair of the caucus. I'm grateful that they are here today and they are prepared to receive this report and to move forward with it so that we can see progress in California. Thank you so very much for being here. Morning. My name is Don Tamaki. I'm one of the nine members of the task force. I'm the only task force member who's not African American and a member that has experience with the Japanese American redress and reparations effort. I want to echo what uh, Secretary Weber just said about reparations. It is not a preposterous idea. It's not welfare. It's not uh, a, a, a check in the mail. It's much more than that. It goes to the very heart of what we think we are as Americans. And Japanese Americans realize that. I want to focus, too, on what um, Member uh, Grills had stated about the endorsement list. Two organizations started that effort. It was a, a black bar association, the John M. Langston Bar, and the Japanese American Bar Association endorsing the concept that it is time to consider reparations in California. That list has grown as of this morning to 306 organizations. If you check it out, supportreparations.org, that list is diverse. There's a lot of Asian American support on that as well as other communities who understand that we have to trace the racial pathology that impacts all of us from whence it originated, which is 1619, and just reverberated in one form or another after 246 years of enslavement, 90 years of Jim Crow and racial terror, and decade after decade more of discrimination, which, by the way, uh, snared other, other uh, racial populations. So this is has to be led by African-American people, but it is a distinctly American pathology that has to be addressed. So uh, I thank you for your interest in covering the story. I, I wanted to, <clears throat> I'm Reggie Jones-Sawyer, Assemblymember. Um, I wanted Senator Bradford to join me. In, so when this leaves and comes to us in the legislature, both the, the Senate and the Assembly, it's almost like passing the baton. Mr. Bradford and I will then have to carry it through the legislature and onto the governor's desk. Um, it is not, I'm a little emotional because today with the Supreme Court ruling, knowing that my uncle who was one of the Little Rock Nine was denied an opportunity to go to a high school, an all-white segregated high school, and now the Supreme Court is really bringing back de facto segregation. The fact that we here in California, who's experienced Prop 209, um, Thurgood Marshall must be spinning his grave right now. But California has an opportunity to reverse it and to do it in the right way, as others have said, because we're talking about harm. It's not race-based, harm-based. And the legislature has historically done different bills, legislative and budget bills, to reverse that. So Mr. Bradford and I will then, over the next year, in, the two, in 2024, because we both are going to term out, we're going to work diligently to make sure we can get as much done out of the recommendations that will be given today as possible so we can begin the process of reversing the um, 
the atrocities that have been foisted on African Americans here in California. Thank you. Good morning, members of the press corps. My name is Amos Cleophilus Brown, born in the state of Mississippi, February the 20th, 1941. My great-great-grandfather, Patrick Brown, was enslaved in Franklin County, Roxy, Mississippi. 1821, my great-great-grandfather was enslaved, and I'm his descendant. No California was not officially a slave state, but in American systems of law, there are crimes that are committed, and one can become an accomplice in the crime. A crime has been done against the humanity of black people. And it's time for us in this nation, in this state, to admit our crime and to make sure that we atone for it and act to do something in order that we will have justice and redress for African-Americans. Dr. Martin Luther King, my teacher, taught only one class in his lifetime. And I was one of the eight students at Morehouse College in 1962. In that class, I remember him having said, if America has organized in a systematized way to do bad things against the Negro, it has the moral obligation to work with the Negro to do good things in behalf of the liberation of the Negro. That sounds like to me affirmative action and reparations. And if this country persists in doing what the Supreme Court has done, we will be indeed given credence to the evil notion of one Aristotle, one of the founders of Western thought, who said that the black man of the Ethiopian was inferior because of the color of our skin, and that we would never be capable of self-governance, and we would always have to have a white man, a white woman over us. That's a lie, but that lie appears to be alive in this nation, and I trust and hope that more people of moral conscience, of goodwill and integrity, will stand up and realize that this nation will not be able to go on as living a lie. It will go the way of ancient Rome, in which the Caesars were up at the top and the plebeians were shunted aside as African Americans have been shunted aside in this nation and in this state. So my friends, we've done our work. And in Mississippi, where I came from, they also said, if a task is once begun, never leave it till it's done. Be the labor, great or small, do it well or not at all. This task force has done the job well done. Well done. And all we have to do is see whether or not America and California will live up to the promises that it has made for others. Thank you very much.
And I thank God for this task force and his great work. Okay. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, thank you to the task force, too. So this concludes the uh, press conference. I uh, just wanted to let you know that even though the task force sunsets on July 1st, that the Charles Communication Group has been retained to assist post-sunset to address any media inquiries um, after July 1st, okay? Um, we will now open it up for questions. I do have a question. It's just one question. That's okay. Okay, and it's in regards to what uh, uh, Reggie Jones always did about the Block 9, Pastor Amos, you know your relations or your knowledge of uh, Emmett Till, but you, Secretary uh, of State, Madam Webster, Elaine Arkansas. Elaine Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, Not I Elaine just want to know what it means to you to, you know, orchestrate uh, legislation when you come from your family background, come from the past, that made y'all, you know, the uh, uh, members of the Great Migration West, and you were able to put together a, a, a legislation like this. What did that mean to you to stand here today to talk about it? Well, you know, I am um, I'm always grateful and humble because despite the challenges faced in being African-American and a woman in this country and having family uh, a part of the Jim Crow South, and having to flee the South because my father was going to be lynched because he stood up for himself at the way station. He was a sharecropper. You know, I look back on all of that, and I'm grateful for the fact that one, California had some opportunities for me. And so it's sad today when we think about affirmative action, even though I wasn't one of the affirmative action admittance because it happened a year before I, uh, the year after I was admitted. But the fact that there were so many there's support systems that's there, and I saw the growth at the university. And so to be able to be a part of progress and see regress in terms of the kinds of things that's happening now is very heartbreaking in many, many ways when we think about how far we've come and yet how far we have not come in this nation with the racial hatred and division that exists against African Americans despite all of the contributions we have made to this country. But I thank uh, my community, I thank my church, I thank those who, uh, who were persevered, my parents, uh, the neighbors that I had who believed in this little girl called Shirley Weber from Hope, Arkansas, and always told me every day, girl, you're going to be something. Little girl, you're going to be somebody someday. And I never forget that. I never forget from whence I've come. And as a result of that, despite the fact that I'm Secretary of State and one of the eight constitutional officers of the state of California and so forth and so on, I never forget from whence I have come and that what I enjoy in terms of opportunity is not the norm. It is not what everybody else enjoys, and we should not get it confused because we've had a black president that that means freedom is here, mm -hmm. that we all continue to struggle to the least of us, as Thurgood Marshall said, to the least of us in this nation have the same opportunity as the best of us, that we still have a responsibility. So I'm honored to be able to author this legislation. I thank my colleagues here from the Black Caucus who were supportive of those efforts. I thank the governor for having the courage to sign that bill as well as many of the other bills that we authored to bring justice to California. And we have to keep being strong enough and persevering enough because those who came before us did that. They didn't stop. They didn't move. And I know our time is up. There's another question from somebody else. Okay. Senator Bradford, can I ask you a question about how much you think you can achieve within the legislature? You know, how realistic do you think it is 
A, that something will get approved, and B, that it will be substantive mm. enough to where it's actually going to make a difference for people. How far do you want to get? We want to go as far as we can. We're going to be hopeful. We're going to be hopeful and, and as positive as possible. We know it's a challenge because we know a lot of folks over there across the street don't want to support reparations. We've seen it too many times. Just last year when we were trying to pass ACA 3 to end involuntary servitude in our prisons in California, and it was members that refused to vote on that measure. So we understand we have our the tasks in front of us, but we're going to do something substantial, not aspirational, but very substantial. Substantial. So I'm looking forward to it, and I know the Legislative Black Caucus, the 12 of us, will stand united in making sure we have substantive policy moving forward to address the wrongs here in California. Can any of the, any of the task force members that would like to speak to any One of the, we have numerous uh, policy prescriptions in the areas of education that was mainly formulated by uh, Vice Chair Brown and members Don Tamaki. So if you all want to elaborate, you all can. The only note I'll say is one of the recommendations is to provide free college tuition at public colleges and universities for descendants of slaves. Not for all black people, but for descendants of slaves. So to that end, that recommendation remains unaffected by SCOTUS's decision today because it's not a race-based admissions preference. Okay, we're going to take two more questions. Hold, hold on, Wendy. Sorry, Sophie, did, someone, did you get your question answered? No, I did respond by yeah. 30 seconds. Yes, please. Okay. So, <clears throat> one lesson is what other states can take from this. And I think the final report is a textbook pathway on how it might be replicated in other states and other locales. And uh, that report, you know, tracks this, these atrocities, but every locale can augment it with their own history. And so I think at least it's a start for other states. So I think that's one lesson. Last question, Wendy. Should the government be here today? Should the governor be here? Um, I, I'm not responsible for the governor, but uh, he is a friend. <laughs> but let me, let me simply say, the purpose of this uh, effort is not, this is not a report to the governor. This is a report to the legislature. And that, that's something people should understand. The governor can only do so much. It is the legislature that has to formulate the programs as well as create the funding to, to, uh, to implement the program. So the report is appropriately being given to the legislature. And that is why you have members of the legislature that's here, that's to be a part of, and they've begun to discuss exactly what they're going to do in moving forward. And the governor's role will be to support and assist in terms of signing the legislation that comes forward. Okay. Guys, through the time, I think we have to wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, Lisa Holder, member of the California Reparations Task Force. Um, I do want to hold up this tome that everyone here worked so hard 
to build. Um, this, this work has been relentless. It has been meticulous. It is unassailable. And it has been the work of a collective. We partnered with the Department of Justice. We partnered with hundreds of scholars. And we partnered with the community, public commenters, and, and participants in listening sessions who poured out their heart and their souls, who told us some of the most devastating stories of racial discrimination, and who shared their pain and made themselves vulnerable to this process. And that is why this book of truth will be a legacy, will be a testament to the full story. Only half the story has ever been told. Here is a document that tells us the full story. We are not post-racial. And I would recommend to anyone who is legislating or creating laws in this country, anyone who says that we are colorblind, that we have solved the problem of anti-black animus and racism, I challenge you to read this document and try and come out with that position. Thank you all. Well, can you hold it up just for one sec? Like this? One more. It's almost 1,200 pages. All right, we hope to see you guys at the post-briefing. Thank you. Great. Okay. Thank you for, for getting that together. Uh, we want to call the meeting of the Reparations Commission for order. Uh, and we have six of nine members in attendance who will move ahead with the agenda um, uh, since we do have a quorum. Uh, the first order of business is to reflect on last... Um, uh, the last meeting at New um, Northside Church. Uh, and so I'll start, because I actually took some, uh, made some comments about what I heard during that meeting. Um, it, it started, first of all, it was, the attendance was better than, uh, than I initially expected when we first walked in. That was good, and people were very engaged and, and very uh expressive, so uh, they really came there for business. Uh, the meeting started with a couple of, of attendees talking about lineage-based reparations and uh, that, that rather cash payments should be first and foremost. But the bulk of the attendees were really talking about the actual structural reforms that were needed. Uh, I, I can read a couple of comments. They wanted to address the repercussions of a restrictive social system um, they wanted to, they asked how would reparations be funded? Um, will this commission actually con um, continue uh, to assure that there's appropriate distribution? And then uh, the last comment was, how are these reparations going to be sustained? Will there be a trust fund to ensure that whatever money is allocated remains secure in the, within a lockbox? So uh, those were really powerful comments. There are comments made about 
uh, lionizing the pioneers, which we certainly agreed with, and uh, addressing structural issues, providing housing loans, underwriting education costs, zero-interest business loans. Those are all kind of the structural issues that, that uh, we, we heard in the first two meetings. So overall, I found that there they were pretty much the same uh, themes articulated in this meeting as the first two. Uh, so that gave us gave a lot of validity to, to what has been said. I'll turn it over to anyone else who wants to reflect. I speak. Um, yeah, I do agree. I think everyone was engaged, um, and there were a lot of good questions and comments, um, and a lot of concerns about, um, you know, lineage-based compensation and and everything. I think uh, a lot of people also wanted they recommended something sustainable as well for us to uh, consider um, when having these conversations. So I feel like um, that was also great as well. Um, I pretty much had the same questions that you wrote down, Dr. Ross. So um, also, I guess to, to know, I think Dr. Gwynn's um, instruction or lecture was also beneficial to everyone as well. Um, and I feel like it was very educational and a lot of people learned a lot of new things about the history of St. Louis. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I, one of the things that uh, I uh, appreciated uh, as an extension to uh, Gwen's uh, presentation uh, was there were others uh, who made comments uh, who uh, helped add it to that historical context uh, about St. Louis and uh, its issue. That was, I think, particularly helpful uh, for me. Uh, learn to learn more about the uh, issue, especially as it related to uh, housing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that uh, was extremely. I thought it was extremely helpful. <clears throat> Good. Yeah, I absolutely concur. Other thoughts, opinions about that, about the overall uh, meeting, rather? I just have not, I'm wondering. What's um, that? Um, I just have things I'm wondering about having having not been in, in attendance. The the flow of public comment. How would you categorize those? Were they questions, storytelling? Um, advice, what, how would you categorize like, you know, the nature of the comments? Uh, I think they were both. Um, I think that uh, they were uh, mostly uh, statements to the commission, uh, and those statements were followed by very specific recommendations. Um, uh, there were, again, it was peppered with questions, so I, I don't think, I think there was a bit of all of that in there. Yeah, I'm just wondering because I, I just remember an email coming coming in, and it, it was kind of a it was a, I can't remember whether it was a critique or it was a question about our process. And so as we're we're going along, you know, I'm just 
I'm just thinking about our process. I know we outline in our, our agenda, but there's all these different tools. You know, Bring you know am I echoing? Hold on a second. That's me. Okay. So. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm just wondering how 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 we're doing with our process and whether the process that we're we're doing. I want to just be mindful that that is going to get us to where where we are. And and what provoked that thought is that um, you know, over Fourth of July weekend, someone started sat down and just started telling me all these stories about his family that go back to 1700s, right? And a lot of those stories had receipts about what actually happened to his black family in, in St. Louis. And it, it, was, it was just so interesting because, like, if this is, if I didn't know this person, just alone on human relationship alone, the power of that storytelling really was like, wow, this is unjust. And um, I would want that family to have equity. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of the grassroots work um, talks about storytelling as a tool for change and also seeing what needs to, to happen. And so, so I'm just, that's what I'm thinking about all these things. Like, are we, are we providing ample opportunity for, for that within yes. the commission? Yes. What do you all think? The answer is yes. Uh, that, that narratives are a powerful part of this commission, that we should uh, 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 respond to, you know, to uh, those narratives. We, they should be... Um, memorialized and, uh, uh, and amplified in whatever we produce uh, just as much as the actual questions and the statements. And so the answer is yes, we need the narrative as much as we need the other, other uh, elements of the commission uh, meetings. I, I, just, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. No, I, I agree with that. And, and I, I think there's been a reasonable amount of storytelling in uh, our public uh, forums. Um, I do agree that, you know, the stories do carry uh, power. And uh, I think it would be critically important uh, to be able to um, reach back as we begin to uh, determine, you know, next steps and how we come up with recommendations to uh, pour the power of the stories into uh, those recommendations uh, as we go uh, forward. Uh, but no, I think you are uh, spot on. Yeah. Uh, other thoughts? I think that when we had our earlier discussions and, and we're planning out these meetings, that was really the intent behind um, having the public comment to, to get those stories. And so I do think that that's an important piece. And as we move forward with the work, they um, those stories are what are helping to craft our topic of research. And it really determines um, a lot of what we are 
are looking to do and produce out of these meetings. So I think that absolutely we can't do any of this without the storytelling because that's the, the historical context. A lot of it is captured in the story where it's not captured otherwise. So I think that that is, um, but I was going to ask Commissioner Frank if you could just go a little further with that. Like, were you only just wanting to know if we were, I guess my, I'm basically saying say more because I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, there's an idea behind my question. I'm, okay. I'm being a lawyer, suggesting my question. Um, well, I just had an idea about a project and about what if we could, as a commission, provide a space for storytelling and we use maybe like the assistance of a local journalist and it, it could be broadcast through this TV and we just open up the channel and it's just put like a flowing public comment session and people can sit and be storytellers. Are we looking for, are you speaking of particular stories or? No, no, it's open mic. So it'd be like open mic and and all it is is storytelling session. That's it. So we would open up this stream, and and that's it. That's the whole point. Is like we're we're just collecting stories. And so we have this forum here, this STL TV, right? And so it could it could be, I don't know. It could be a night and. It could be like two hours and people can, can sign up and they tell a story and we, we sit and listen, the public sits and listens, and it's just an open mic to capture and record those stories. And maybe a person gets, I don't know, each person gets a little bit longer time at public comment to do that as far as our process. I don't see. Uh, that anything would prevent us from doing that. I think that would be adjunctive, of, an important adjunct to what's being done in actual commission meetings. And so I think that's worthy to have a, a greater conversation about how to do that uh, practically. Um, but I think that could be a powerful part of it. Uh, I, I wouldn't have any dis disagreements with that. I would say along those lines, because I, I agree that uh, trying to open up the space that we can provide for, for narratives and stories is really important, um, especially, as Dr. Ross is saying, as an, as an adjunct or, and to augment what we're doing um, during our, our public meetings and, and our planning meetings. Um, along those lines, I'm just thinking about the platforms. You know, this is certainly one of those platforms. But there are some barriers to this as well, though. I mean, people need to, I'm just thinking about some, sometimes when we have to ourselves get online for these kinds of things, it can be a little bit tricky. And then thinking about um, being inclusive of people who might not have smooth access um, to the internet, et cetera. But there are nonprofit initiatives that have these mobile studios that um, you know, kind of, they they announce where they're going to be located. It's, it looks like a trailer. Oftentimes, I don't know if any of you have ever seen these. It looks like a trailer, and people can come out, and they actually get to sit in the studio for. You know, usually there's some bounded time, but it's a lot longer than what we typically provide during meetings, and it gets re recorded at high quality as well, and then it can be used later on if people are willing to allow their stories to be presented. Um, I'm just thinking, given the import of our work, I imagine that some of these organizations would actually 
be interested in partnering, you know, and, and providing some of these kinds of things uh, at, at low or no cost. Um, wow. So just, just a thought about platform. Humans of St. Louis is really great at capturing narratives, right, and providing a space. That's where I'm going with this. Okay, well, uh, that's, uh, that, that, that's on the front burner uh, for exploration. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned Humans of St. Louis. I, I know people involved there. And so uh, let's, let's do some um, homework on that, on that particular um, recommendation. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll all kind of investigate this a little bit more. So thank you. I'm willing to work on that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so we, let's, let's move on because it's 620. We want to get through a lot. Uh, I got home at 6 and I haven't eaten dinner, so this is not going to go past 7 o'clock. Um, uh, so uh, we know what worked. Uh, I, let's talk about what could be improved in that last session. I know you weren't there, uh, Kimberly, but we can talk about um, were there um, nuances that uh, prohibited free expression, um, were there, you know, just technical issues. I'll start also, um, the, you know, having the microphone only in the front, I thought was, um, it didn't lend to the ability to um, Express this directly to the commission. It's as if the questioners were, were were sending the questions to the audience, um, and you know we want to ensure that this is um, the intent is to have information received by the commission, and having the microphone in that way, it, even though we heard everything, it was received. Uh, it wasn't uh, consistent with what our what our uh, plans were in terms, you know, in terms of um, the uh, overall um, a uh, aesthetics uh, of a commission meeting. So we'll, we, we really would not want to have that again. We want to have the, the microphone available in the um, uh, uh, within the audience, so they can then share uh, within the audience rather than coming up into coming up to the podium. Other thoughts, other concerns about what could work better? I would second that mic location. I was not at the meeting in person, but I did see online and it was positioned in a way where you don't you don't get the full view, but it also um it, it just seemed different than in previous meetings and that's a bit of an awkward position. Um I also um, there was one more point about what could have been improved. Um, I lost it, so I'll come back to it if we're, if we're still within the session. Okay. Any other comments about what could have been improved? I, I think the richness of the discussion was there. Um, uh, the content was really good. And, and so I, I really left inspired by the, thought, the comments that were made. If there are no more comments, we'll go on to the next uh, topic, next agenda topic. My computer's working, so I can read everything now. Uh, and uh, we, uh, the next agenda topic reads research topics. Um, and so um, I, I, I want to take um, um, kind of take a little time to think about before we go into research topics. 
Um, I want to get back to what we heard from that second meeting uh, about, and it delves into uh, the research topic. A strong statement was made about us needing greater representation on the commission. Uh, greater representation, uh, some uh, um, gentleman spoke of the need to have uh, no, no, no more business leaders and economists. Uh, um, in fact, you really nailed that. I absolutely agree wholeheartedly. We need to have an economist. And, you know, there are others who, who, who could represent different areas uh, uh, of thought. Uh, those people, um, obviously the commission is work, working under the, you know, that um, the mayoral's, mayoral authority. And, and so the nine people were there and there's really no, won't be a, a precedent for adding new members, but they certainly could occupy working groups. And so I want us to think about who we would want in those working groups. And then based on how we would extend those working groups, then we can talk about what research should we uh, explore. So thoughts about work, about work, about um, additional uh, members for working groups, apart from the nine of us. Uh, and we, should, we shouldn't come up with names. I just want, I, I, I think we should just talk about uh, generic uh, positions or generic uh, uh, the, um, areas of, of uh, that need where we need expertise. I would suggest educator, um, an educator, maybe someone who who works. Um, I'll just say educator, someone with, within that background to not at the higher academic level, such as, you know, where you and Dr. Cunningham are, but perhaps um, that could speak to, if we're really thinking in terms of researching the educational angle and how closing these schools, for example, in neighborhoods and just that impact, what that looks like, what that has the ripple effect there, um, what they've seen on that secondary education level and, and really early childhood as well. Okay, great. So we're going to talk about childhood education, the impact of school closings, so many other policy issues. I think that's a great idea. And so... Just, uh, just to have... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I, I was just uh, <clears throat> just noting just to have out there, it, it seems like if we're looking to other commissions and thinking about, well, how did they bound the areas and, and think about the kinds of the equivalent of the working groups that we're talking about now, I think the big four that we see everywhere, and I think this really overlaps with uh, Delachey's point just now, is um, the emphasis, there seems to be an emerging consensus that the emphasis should be on, on health, wealth, housing and education are, are kind of the four um, kind of umbrella areas that people have been working in. Um, so certainly we just mentioned education and um, it doesn't mean we need to follow those, but just if we want to think about um, fairly standardized um, areas, those might be some to at least begin with. Yeah, I, I think that, I think those categories are great. And um, so we already talked about education and uh, we can expand that working groups more than, we don't, we can have more than two people, more than one person. 
I started out by saying we need an economist or someone who really can talk about the financial consequences of rigid segregation and socioeconomic disadvantages. Health is going to be a key part, and I was asked to talk about health at the next meeting, and I'll just spend 10 minutes introducing that topic. So we can certainly use additional members who can talk about health, particularly community health and housing. When you mentioned housing, one person who really came to mind is Chris Cremeyer, who is the CEO of Beyond Housing. I think someone who could speak to that. I mean, there are others who can speak to that, but my goodness, he has such a track record of actual knowing the subject and actually living it and producing. So I like those education, wealth, health, housing. I think those categories are great, David. And just two quick comments on that, too. One, as I was saying that, I realized that an area, at least I personally would want to propose, potentially augmenting our list would be something around the criminal legal system. And so just to have that out there as a potential fifth one. And then the other thing, as you were just mentioning housing, I have a colleague in the sociology department I'm in named Elizabeth Corver-Glenn, and Elizabeth would be willing to work on a working group if we wanted to, but she's also a good example because I could imagine ways of addressing housing that really focus on kind of flashpoint policies that affect large numbers of people in a very identifiable way. So thinking about Mill Creek Valley is like a really clear example of that. But Elizabeth focuses on kind of like daily quotidian practices of real estate appraisers and how they, in effect, reproduce racist and racial inequalities just through the daily practice of that field, so just appraisals. And it's just an example of something. It's not invisible. Obviously, if you're impacted by this, you feel what happens. But it's just kind of the daily practice that isn't something that people just reach out and identify as like this is the heart of the problem. But it seems like a good example of something where we have people in a working group who are really attuned to those daily practices. The person you mentioned from Beyond Housing would probably be another person that could really be attuned to that, as well as people who can think historically about these large policy moments like Mill Creek Valley where, you know, neighborhoods would be raised or erased, et cetera. And so just to make an appeal for trying to think about a combination of people who can hit on kind of both sides of that. Appreciate that. Elizabeth, what was her last name? Corver Glenn. I'll put it in the chat so you can spell it. Thanks. So I just want to get some clarification or to say something. So I think it's definitely important to identify these areas of focus, but I question whether it's necessary that the person spearheading or occupying the group are experts. And I come at this from, I remember being just, and I say this like happily, admonished by Kayla about some language here, which is like, I said something like, oh, maybe they get capital. And she said, well, I'm an abolitionist. So I share that perspective too in my approach. So like, I'm thinking broader about the culture of our commission, what it is we're talking about, right? We're talking about reparations, which are like tools 
uh, it's, a, it's a tool to bring equity in the face of a, a oppression of an oppressive system and so they say that you you you'll never be able to dismantle the master's house using the master's tools so there's all these tools here and there's barriers so i i feel like a lot of this conversation is focused on like all of us pretty much look i, I are pretty educated elite here so i i feel like um some of the people that are probably most experiencing the the feel the feel of inequity are not in this room right now and not able to curate what this looks like right so i feel like when it comes to diversity of representation that we need to take a look at that and we need to take a look at things like i feel like it's very important how we set up the space for our meetings do we want this to look like a traditional board meeting right is that is that going or or does this look can this look like something else can this look different right because we're trying to unravel something and also correct something um so from from that from that perspective i think there's definitely experts that have been studying things and they provide information for them but yes let's divide the areas but also let's think about who needs who do we need to tap for these for these um, conversations, can we think about some different types of leadership uh, so, um, in these areas? So community voices are critical. Mm -hmm. uh, I would agree uh, wholeheartedly. And uh, I, I would uh, gather that we would want to have community voices on all these different work groups. That's mm -hmm. uh, a community group, but uh, they, they should influence uh, or should be able to be part uh, their their, their uh, thoughts and background into every single group. I, I, they really should be uh, the thrust of what we do when we create the groups. I also think that there should be some leadership. That there should be some leadership opportunity there for the community um, That all of our leadership should not necessarily be academia, um, professional experts. So I'd like, like to see us have some diversity in that, that regard. Yeah, so community presidents, uh, community leaders, I think, yes. We would all, I think we would all agree with that. Thank you. Um, so uh, any other broad group, broad groups that we should focus on? We, we can discuss, we have, we'll have some time to talk about uh, how we're going to constitute those, those working groups, so I want to make sure that we've thought about the broad category. Okay, this is what I've kind of written down, and we might have, this might overlap. I've got financial, environment, um, and we already covered health and education, the public ser service realm, like elected officials, and um, non-profit realm, and then civic realms. Uh, so you were talking about groups, or are you just talking about people who should be in the groups? I'm talking about catechic-like areas okay. in which all of it, in which reparation and inequities lie. So we have things that rest in the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Um, we have things resting in the civic influence, in that civic realm. So I'm looking at those, those categories that I 
I think merit examination, merit scrutiny. Okay, I understand that, uh, but we we really have a limited uh, workforce to deal with. We, we're not going to be able to accommodate multiple working groups if we're really going to have some uh, thoughtful discussion. I think it's best that we have four to five categories and that we collapse. I, everything that you said, I think right. I agree with you. I think we can, with those, so most of those can be collapsed into those five categories. Uh, you added one that I did put there, and that was uh, environmental. So we have essentially uh, education, uh, you know, economics, financial, two, health, three, housing, four, criminal justice, environmental, then you mentioned community presence and leaders. I don't consider the second uh, a, an additional group because that uh, will be woven throughout all of the groups. Um, yeah, I want to throw it out for discussion. A lot of things, so. Um, Let's go about that. Definitely up for discussion and whittle it down from there. Anybody else have thoughts on it? So I agree with, um, with those six areas, and I do think that community leaders fall within all of them, as do those that are considered experts. Um, I think if we want to have, I, I, I feel like a panel discussion versus a speaker um, would allow for us to have two or three there so that you have representatives, those groups, you have your community leaders, you have your um, <clears throat> experts, you know, in that we're, but, you know, in, in their own community, experts, on the ground. So I don't want to take away from that as well, but I think to have your community that would also help with collapsing some of this because Dr. Rock's point can't, it'll get too big after a while. Oh, yeah. 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 But at the same time, within our working group and within our speaker presentation, our panel, we can, we can really touch on all that. You know, we can present in that way. Um, but I think community forces are, are the driving voices for sure of a lot of it. And I, I think in concert with the academia as well to kind of balance. So um, I think they can work together, kind of a both things situation. Good. Good discussion. Great discussion. Um, so we, I think we should uh, look at these categories that we have. We'll, we'll, we'll share that. And then we have to spend the next uh, few weeks really thinking about how to populate these these working groups. Once they're populated, then we can ask what specific research questions should we pose uh, in addition to what we're going to be compiling in the actual commission meetings. So I think it's going to follow fairly organically how we do this. Mm -hmm. Everyone, is there an agreement on that or thoughts about that? I, I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, and also the uh, premise of not uh, expanding our work too far and wide, it becomes uh, a way for us to get to where we need to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree, Reverend. I'm unwieldy. Okay, well, good. That's good discussion. Excellent discussion. Um, 
Now, let's move on to speakers. And uh, we had already talked about uh, these two major speakers we want, uh, Walter Johnson and Colin Gordon. Um, and uh, you know, trying to ensure that we can get those top speakers would be critical before we will move on. So um, uh, I, I want us to be careful in, in really thinking about how many speakers um, we, uh, our goal is, is not to have multiple major presentations to the public. Uh, our, 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 our charge is to listen to the public, uh, not not lecture to the public. And so, I would I, my personal recommendation is that we really not have an extensive list of speakers. We want to have you know maybe two. Uh, really deeply thoughtful leaders in the field, and then we can have a, a couple, you know, all, all of us can, you know, come in, you know, in our small areas of expertise the way Gwen did at the last session. I think that works better. Um, there was a, uh, a, a name placed on the agenda, the Varian Baldwin, as a potential speaker. Um, let me speak against that. Uh, Devarian Baldwin is just a remarkable person, thoughtful, uh, uh, crafty, highly uh, energetic, sophisticated, uh, a true scholar. But his scholarship is uh, tends to be uh, not as expansive as, as we need for this this commission. It tends to be sometimes uh, uh, too uh, directionally focused. We want individuals who, if when we bring in scholars, we want individuals who really will look across the entire landscape and, and speak to that. Uh, and so that's why, again, I mean, he's a great speaker, but we, we don't have time for a whole lot of speakers. And that's why I would, I, I, if we can get Colin Gordon and, uh, and Walter Johnson, I don't think we would need any more than that, nor will we have time for any more than that. Other thoughts about that? I yeah, I don't um, I don't know why he's recommended, but as a uh, I trust your your scrutiny. What about um, Christopher Tenson over at SLU? Uh, I think it's probably. Good to have somebody who who's local. We said we said that at the inception of this that we really want to tap into our local experts, and so I think that's much more of a reasonable option. Um, I don't know, and I, I say all of that was without. I know his name came up on the initial list, and so he has his angle, and he would be he would be modest enough to 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 be like, well, yeah, you got this song on the short list and I would I would tender the tender things over to this person but he's chair of black studies yeah. open clue pretty tuned in yeah. uh, I, I think that I think that's reasonable and I think it's important that we have a you know although we don't really want to have more than two Two major speakers. We have to have to have a contingency plan because some of these speakers 
just may not pan out for lots of reasons. And, and maybe along those lines, another way to um, broaden our speaker base a little bit without it taking up more of our meeting, because I, I think I had mentioned this before, but another professor of black studies in the area um, is Jeff Ward, who is at WashU, but he has co-taught with Walter Johnson. Um, they, they have kind of coordinated classes at Harvard and at WashU. And so they work together really well. And um, so if, if Walter is coming to speak, I'm sure he and Jeff could coordinate and we'd have kind of a, I know Walter is local to St. Louis in a lot of ways, very close to the community, but Jeff is, is in the community as well. Um, and, and they might work well together um, without mm -hmm. it taking up two separate meetings. Uh, I think that's great. I'd love to see the chair of Black Studies at SLU and WashU. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, I think that's great. Other thoughts? Okay. Um, so we now have, we really have to um, uh, try to get commitments from uh, Walter Johnson and, and Colin Gordon uh, within the next month. Uh, if they are, if we can't nail them down by the end of August, then uh, we just move on to the people that we have here locally. Uh, um. I'm sorry, Dr. Ross. I just want <clears throat> to add that in the outreach, I've been on, on communications that Dr. Mitchell has sent out to and um, calendars are filling up quickly. And, and so it would be helpful on our end to have dates to offer. And that has been some of the hang up as well with some of the speakers. Uh, for the, especially the ones who do, who are in academia, a few of them have responded that for the summer, they're, you know, they're pretty much tied up doing whatever they're doing, but they're opening their calendars for fall. But we don't have dates to offer for the fall. So I think as a clinician, we really need to be mindful of that as we are wanting to have speakers come in. And even on the local level, we just need to have dates to offer. Um, as well, and just keeping that in mind. Uh, yes, um, and so at the beginning, um, I, I, I know we had operated under this premise that uh, many of us knew Walter Johnson and Colin Gordon and could get them to commit. We knew the commission dates, they were already there. So, um, so we now have to just go back and, and present specific dates uh, to these two preferred speakers, I should say preferred speakers, but two top to the first speakers, and then go from there. Um, and so um, Vernon is the one who knew Walter Johnson and could get that contact. And so is, Vernon's not on the call. Uh, so we'll have to follow up with Vernon and, and state, you know, we, you know, preference, you know, would be the September and October meeting. By November, we really want to start wrapping up and uh, collating information uh, for a report which we want to share with the public in a matter of three months. So, uh, so we really, I frankly, it's my recommendation that we really have those have September and October for those major speakers. We, we can do the other speakers at, uh, maybe at, at another time. So perhaps we, Dr. Rothman, suggest that maybe we. Take up the vote and, and have that motion made and move forward with that as a motion as a 
I think that's great. So are you making that what motion? Do you want to do you want to make the motion? Um, uh, well, four August with Dr. Rusher, you're off, correct? Because they need to go. Uh, uh, July. July. Okay, so so August through December that we we set a format and we agree to that format and move forward with our speakers, our process. I'm not so sure I'm following that. I know that wasn't very clear, so let me retract. I make the motion that we vote on a format for our meeting August through December and that we use those meetings to then go ahead and set our research and to work the remainder of the the time that we have. So January through March. So we're basically so we don't keep having these discussions around speakers and what we're going to be presenting and we can actually support. Can we disagree with your recommendation that we focus in on these on this speaker format that you suggested that we discussed and move forward. So we don't have another meeting then how are we gonna do this? So uh, a friendly amendment would be to highlight September and October uh, as the uh, uh, times for the two major speakers. Okay. I wouldn't want to. Ha I, I don't think we should try to do anything later than that. Do you accept that amendment? To wrap by October. To wrap up the October meeting. No, no. To have the two major speakers in either September or October. Okay. Okay, so uh, it has been moved by Della Shea uh, that we really structure uh, the, full, uh, the next upcoming meetings uh, up until January to accommodate speakers, but um, uh, reserve the next uh, the months of September and October for our major speakers. Uh, so it has been moved. Is there a second? Second. Okay, all in favor, say aye or raise your hand. Aye. Aye. Any opposed? No extensions? Okay, so it is so moved. Great. Great. I think that's uh, that's good to clear that up. Thank you, Delachey. Which really gets us into the last part of the meeting now, uh, the last five minutes, is to talk about the meeting dates and uh, locations for September and October. Uh, on the um, initial uh, calendar, we actually stated we wanted to go to South City, South County, or South City is a city, uh, South City for the uh, next two meetings after uh, after July. And so, any, and um, in terms of dates and locations, um, hold on a second for the calendar. So we're talking about September. Um, and you know, we talked about um, uh, uh, balancing them weekday and weekend so we can get a different um, slice of the, of the, pop of the populace. Um. <laughs> If we 
think since we've had a couple of meetings where we've had them during the week and we've had a weekend to kind of see does that is that helpful? Uh, I thought the turnout was relatively uh, comparable oh, at the meeting on, on the weekend. I, I thought the response, I thought the questions were deeper, um, and I thought the engagement was, was richer. But the turnout, was, I thought, was comparable. Okay. So do we want to consider another weekend and weekday for these perhaps? Yes, I think because August is a Saturday meeting um, on August 26th, so I think alternating was fine. And I, I would like to see how the August meeting turns out because it's the one that we had on the last, this past weekend where we tested it out, um, there was a bunch of things going on in the city, so it kind of affected the turnout. Um, so I feel like if less distractions, we can kind of get a good sense on how a weekend would actually turn out without, you know, all the events that were going on. I agree with that. Um, we may not be able to, to confirm dates right now. I, I just want to forewarn. Um, we we should we should probably check the, um, the the calendar, the city calendar for that weekend in August. And here's why. Um, the St. Louis turns up with festivals in August. It's, it's heavy. It's really, really, really big. That's what I tell everybody about. Like I know I tell people it's the best time of the year to come to St. Louis. So we could we could stay with that for the sake of um, turnout. Um, maybe consider a Sunday instead. But I like that all. Right. We should we should double check. I'm I'm for. Huh? meeting when we did the planning for it. We know that we know Festival of Nations one day going on that weekend, but we we talked about it at the meeting where we decided on that date to narrow it down to that date with consideration okay. um, to those items. But okay. we did we did have an an in depth conversation around that. Okay, well no no sense of rehashing. Okay. So did we come I'm sorry, did we come up with a date in September? I I've got I don't believe we have I don't to I don't believe we did. I, I didn't we think did. we did. We no, got we a planning we got a planning meeting on the calendar for September thirteenth. So my assumption is that the meeting is the following 16th. Wednesday. Uh okay, or the following Wednesday, the twentieth of September. Well we have a planning meeting for September thirteenth. Well the planning meetings are the second Wednesday of every month. So that was to get them on our calendar. The the public meeting doesn't necessarily take place a week after. But the planning meeting is set for the second Wednesday of every month. So I think so. Looking at the calendar, and so we haven't we we have to agree on either sixteenth or the uh, or the twenty third, maybe a weekend, uh, because you know as uh, Bill just said, we want to just test out, make sure that without a lot of competing events, we can do a weekend. So I, I, I would recommend that we consider the 16th or the 23rd of September. Well, we we did the um, the weekend and we're doing the weekend office, so I thought we were alternating from. And like for me personally as commissioner, the weekends are are a huge burden. Okay. 
But that's that's reasonable. I'm I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. So um, so uh, let's let's throw out some dates then. If we wanted to stay consistent with our weekday, kind of last week of the month, would something like the 27th work for folks? It's the last Wednesday in September. I think September 27th is a good idea. And we'll put it somewhere in South City. Any, any, anyone opposed to September 27th? There are going to be, we're going to have exceptions. We're all going to, we're busy people. We can all. I think the 27th sounds good. Yes, I'm fine. Okay, good. That is confirmed. Do we want to do October or we want to just hold off on that? Can we get October? That would, that would um, be helpful for the speakers. <laughs> for trying to, to get speakers. Yeah. Okay, I, I would agree. Fourth Saturday. A Saturday. Fourth uh, Saturday. Fourth Saturday. That would be twenty eighth. October twenty eighth. How does that sound? I won't be here, but that don't don't rely the decision on me. I won't be available that weekend either, but I can absolutely help with the planning. What about the far weekend, twenty first? I won't be there 21st. I will be out of town. Well, Dr. Ross, for the one where you know you won't be present, we definitely need to make sure that Terry is available. Okay. So, um... We can maybe hold off, um, if need be, if the, if the 28th is not what we'll go with, and if it's the 21st tentatively, um, we'll try to connect with Terry for that one. Yeah. yeah, I would like to be here if we have a major speaker in October, so I Okay. Yeah, I, I would try to find some date that accommodate uh, as many of us as possible. So if the 28th works, the majority. So let's say uh, tentative 28th and we'll talk with uh, Kayla. Sounds good? Yep. Okay. Uh, well, good. I think that we have um, completed our agenda. Well, in terms of location, I did. So we discussed uh, possible locations, um, St. Mary's and St. Cecilia's, and, and I did reach out to St. Cecilia and inquire about their safety. So um, they don't have anyone there to assist with setup. So there would be some labor involved with that. So they're like, yeah, we don't have anybody there to help set up chairs. So if they can't set up chairs, we probably won't have audio visual, but they have the big gymnasium where they, they have the fish fry every year and that, and that holds, holds quite a bit of people. And they, somebody does plug in audio visual. I just don't know that the acoustics would be yeah, the acoustics, I, I know St. Mary's acoustics aren't great. Uh, we just had a Missouri Foundation for Health. St. Cecilia, St. Cecilia. Okay, you're talking about St. Cecilia. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know that church. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's reasonable. I do know that we talked about the machine, uh, was the machinist hall uh, on? On uh, Choto. Choto, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, then it flowed from, we were trying to get closer to, to like uh, Dutchtown, so further 
um, deeper into South City. Okay, so uh, I, I don't think we should write off the place in Shoto. I think that could bring in a very good sector, and then we can move something, I agree, a little bit more in Dogtown. Oh, no, no. So Dogtown would not be <laughs> South City. So what we had to discuss was, like, possibilities in South City. So I, I, I agree that I would look into it. And I think I believe Kayla said that she would look into um, St. Mary's and also um, what's uh, the community center down there that was also thrown out as a contender to move into the the area where where basically at the heart of the black where the part of the black community lives in South City. That was the the, the logic and the discussion. Okay. Um, yeah. Then we'll have to just wait uh, and have you confirm all that with Kayla then, because uh, we need. To, you know, we we obviously we don't have a, spe a specific location yet. Is that agreeable? That yes. Certainly, by the end of this month, we'll be able to identify a particular uh, location in both location in both areas. And yeah. So. The C, yeah, so the feedback from uh, from them. So she said she had to check with the priest there, but it, it's $125 for the space. Okay. So I'm just bringing back the information. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, costs like that are nominal. Uh, we will. I'm confident we can get that taken care of. Okay. So so that's that's the only uh, plan. A major plan going forward, uh, two major plans going forward, secure the dates of the two speakers, um, and then uh, secure the locations in South City. And hopefully we'll have that done in the next few weeks. The next, um, okay, so we're set then for our next meeting, um, which will be next week. Is it, what's, it, what's that date? The 26th. 26th, absolutely. So my calendar, 26th. In that case, I'll see you all on the 26th at New um, uh, New Northside Church. Adjourn. Okay. Officially adjourned. Okay. Is there a motion to adjourn? Motion. So move. Okay. Aye. All in favor? Aye. Say aye. We are officially adjourned. Thank you all. Thank you. See you all. Thanks, all. Good night. Calls for reparations grow louder across the Caribbean. Will the UK apologize and pay for the historical impact of slavery on former colonies in the West Indies? Or, as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says, is unpicking history not the right way forward? I'm Andrea Sankey, and today's newsmaker is the call for reparations. Slavery and violence defined British imperial control in the Caribbean. As early as 1629, the British brought people taken largely from West Africa and enslaved them to work on sugar plantations for hundreds of years. Now that slavery funded the European Industrial Revolution as well as its future wealth and development. The tiny island of Barbados became known as Little England and was one of Britain's most valuable colonies. 
An estimated half a million slaves were used there to farm and process sugarcane, known as white gold. The system of slavery in Barbados was so efficient, it was used to institute one of the first slave labor codes, a legal framework England then exported to other colonies, including the United States. Barbados is the incubator. Barbados is the experiment that it could be done. So this island is unique, not only for its beauty and all the contemporary positive features, but this is where the greatest, the, the greatest experiment in human terror in the modern era was first put in place in Barbados. Now, almost 200 years since the abolition of slavery and 60 years after independence from the UK, Barbados has become a leading voice in the Caribbean movement for reparations. Years of hard work by activists and academics is gaining traction. A national reparations task force was created in 2012, followed by the Caribbean Community, or CARICOM's groundbreaking 2014 reparations plan. And recently, Barbados made headlines for targeting wealthy Britons for individual reparations, including actor Benedict Cumberbatch and member of parliament Richard Draft, whose family even runs its 17th century plantation in Barbados. But in spite of the headlines, real progress is slow. In the U.S., two federal reparations bills have stalled. The Church of England has identified ways that one of its arms profited from enslavement and set aside a $120 million fund to address racial inequality. King Charles has agreed to a study of the monarchy's already documented ties to the slave trade, but Britain's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, has rejected calls for reparations. Meanwhile, the leader of Barbados says to ignore this is wrong. And we feel that we have a moral obligation to be able to start to deconstruct the racism in all of its forms. It doesn't only come in laws that are still there, but it also comes in ways in which people undermine democracy, in ways in which people prevent people from voting, in ways in which people make judgments about people because of color or race. And we've got to work hard to deconstruct it. And we have to also recognize that when many countries became independent, um, there was no development compact or development package left for us, finance, education, health care, or any of these issues. And, and we have to ask ourselves, can we accept that the Industrial Revolution was financed by the blood, sweat, and tears and money of developing countries, and at the same time causes the climate crisis today? And it's a case of double jeopardy. So. We had the wealth taken from us, and now we are facing the consequences of that wealth's impact on the Earth's climate. It's wrong. Just simply wrong. So can reparations compensate for the torture of slavery, as well as its damaging legacy? And if so, how can it be fairly applied? Well, joining me now to debate that and more are from London, Esther Sanford Jose. She is Coordinator General of Stop the Mangamizi campaign, which works on getting the UK government to pass reparations. From Durham, North Carolina, is William Darity Jr. He is a Samuel Dubois professor at Duke University and also author of From Here to Equality. And from North in the UK, David Campbell Bannerman is chairman of the Freedom Association and the former conservative member of the European Parliament. Thanks all so much for being with me. William, I'll start with you. You know, it used to feel like the more time that passed, the less likely it was that substantial reparations would ever be kind of agreed to and properly distributed. But people seem to have real confidence in this Caribbean movement. 
tell us what's been your experience. What has it shown you? Do you think something will be agreed to here, and will it have an actual impact on communities today? Well, I think the level of conversation in the present moment is uh, more dramatic and profound than any level of discussion of this issue in my lifetime, and perhaps from the standpoint of the U.S. historical record since the Reconstruction era in the United States. So I think that the possibility lies out there for the establishment of comprehensive reparations uh, to a degree that it has not in any previous moment. It's also, I mean, where have you seen, uh, if at all, have you seen, you know, models for reparations actually work? Where has it been effectively applied? Well, there are a number of uh, precedents, but uh, perhaps the uh, most significant precedents uh, involve the German government's payment of reparations to the victims of the Holocaust, as well as payments that were made to the State of Israel, but also in the U.S. context, perhaps most notable is the payments that were made to Japanese Americans who had been subjected to mass incarceration by the United States government uh, in the course of World War II. Okay. Esther, let me turn to you. You are actually a, a citizen of Barbados, so I'd actually yes. first like you to help us understand the legacy of slavery in Barbados from more of a personal standpoint. How does the damage, as well as the discrimination and racism, how does it manifest today, so much so that reparations are needed to properly address the wrong? So one of the biggest areas of injury that has impacted people like myself is what's known as the injury of peoplehood and nationhood, in the sense that we are a dichotomized, dispersed people who now no longer carry the identities of our forebears, our foreparents, and who, as a result of that, experience varying degrees of not only statelessness, but also um, impacted citizenship, where citizenship is always a second or a third class citizenship, because there isn't a recognition yet uh, about our own sovereignty as African human beings. We can be recognized as being minority ethnic people or in the images of our colonial oppressors in terms of the nations that they have formed, but linking us to our true power base, uh, which is a global power base, is something that is severely impacted. Anti-African sentiment, which is known as Afrophobia, uh, anti-African prejudice and discrimination, is still very prevalent, even in the Caribbean where there is huge amounts of colorism and discrimination based on your skin tone, the, you know, your actual phenotype, how close you look to Europeans or how close you are to your African heritage and ancestry. Okay. Now, I know you are obviously a proponent of reparations. I want to come back to you in a minute about how you think uh, reparations should be decided, whom they should be paid out to in a minute. But first, I need to get to David. And David, you need to tell us, I mean, why the idea of paying reparations for slavery is, is somewhat farcical. Well, I think it's a ridiculous idea, I'm afraid. I, I mean, look, a lot of this is very historical. It's hundreds of years ago. And if you look at British history, you could go back and say, well, should we you know, be suing the Italians to, for Roman slaves or suing the French for, for Norman slaves? I mean, the, Norman, the Saxon slaves actually built Durham Cathedral 
in, in England. So I just think the notion of this is, is nonsense. I mean, slavery is obviously horrible, and it was a horrible chapter, but a lot of horrible things happened hundreds of years ago. Big hung, drawn, and quartered for treason was, was one of them, for example. Uh, and I, I just think this is, is, is victimhood. It doesn't help anyone. And reparations don't have a happy history. They forced it on Germany after the First World War, and it led directly to the Second World War. It's not a happy uh, instrument uh, either. But, David, what about William's other, other examples, when reparations really have worked? And they have given people a genuine sense of justice, not least uh, Germany paying reparations and supporting those that suffered in the Holocaust post-World War II. Well, I'm more sympathetic to that, but that's modern day. You know, there's some living people. We're talking about uh, there's no living uh, uh, slave traders, you know, from hundreds of years ago, obviously. Uh, no, I am more sympathetic to that. Uh, I think they were very special measures after the war. And there was a special case because people were destitute, because they'd been, their homes had been stolen uh, and their families destroyed. So that, that, I think, was very different. But what we're talking about here is, you know, going back to um, Caribbean uh, slavery. Uh, and I think that's a very different case. A question I would ask, by the way, is are you going to go after the African tribes who sold many of these slaves to the traders? And I'm, I'm very serious about this. The Foreign Secretary of Britain uh, is from Ghana originally, and he was telling me that his family would ensure that, that the slave traders got the, their rival tribes uh, and, and sent them to the Caribbean. And it was a power struggle. And are they going to have to pay reparations as well? I mean, that's not clear. Okay, uh, William, let's, I'll have you address this uh, to begin with. Not only is this so far in the past, but the victimhood has almost become diluted over the centuries, according to David. And also, he seems to feel everyone was somehow complicit, including tribes back in, in West Africa. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt the latter statement. Uh, I've thought about this more in the context of the United States, which is perhaps somewhat different from the Caribbean case, and I don't want to try to speak authoritatively about the Caribbean case. Uh, but in the United States, it's not just a question of the history of slavery as having an impact on the lives of descendants of individuals who were enslaved in the United States specifically. Uh, it's also a set of policies that were conducted by the United States government that maintained the capacity of white Americans to accumulate significant amounts of wealth to the disadvantage of black Americans. Uh, one example is in the 19th century, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the federal government provides one and a half million white households with 160-acre land grants in the Western Territories under the Homestead Act of 1862, approximately 10% of the white population in the United States. In contrast, black Americans who emerged from slavery with 40-acre land grants as restitution and did not receive those at all. In the 20th century, the federal government in the United States shifts away from asset building predicated on land distribution to home ownership, and then it does that in a highly discriminatory fashion, both through the phenomenon of redlining as well as the unfair application of the home buying provisions of the GI Bill in the aftermath of World War II. So we are not talking about the 19th century alone. Right. We are talking about a recent historical record. Very recent. Many would argue it continues 
very strongly today. But let me come to Esther then, because David was obviously making the point that there's this is all history, going hundreds of years back. And as I said, he seems to think it's been so diluted over the years that you can't really determine fairly who the actual victims are and who's responsible. Because again, everyone, he says, was, was complicit, including Africans themselves, back in uh, the slaves' native country. So how do you determine, really, who, who should have to take responsibility? Well, this is a matter of justice, okay? We can determine this. We haven't got time to go into this program of all the research that's been done that can identify how uh, the impact of uh, wealth, dispossession, landlessness continues to mar the lives of people of African heritage and ancestry in the Caribbean and across the, the diaspora. Now, when people are opposed to reparations and they say this is just about the past, it's because they are very, to be quite frank with you, ill-informed and uneducated as to what the arguments of reparations are. So we base our claims to repair, let's, let's use that language of repair, on the basis of the contemporary impact of harmful actions and wrongdoings. When it is in the case in the UK, we were all paying back taxes that were generated as a result of the debt that was built up that paid uh, enslavers and the enslaved got nothing. This shows you that this is a contemporary reality. And this paying back of taxes happened uh, you know, up until 2015. So it means myself, all of my family members were implicated in having to pay back a debt that was built up as a result of compensating people that enslaved my forebears. This is totally wrong. And the perspective of reparations... Andrea, Esther, this country, Britain, actually um, stopped the slave trade and it lost thousands of lives, soldiers and sailors, fighting the slave trade. And we only just paid off the debt in 2015. That's pretty contemporary. No, uh, no, you know, no, 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 no. You're, you're wrong. That went to enslavers. Go and check your facts. You are totally misinformed. I'm a well-known on history. And so am I, with respect. And, well, yeah, so, yeah, so the point you know, is the British did not, the British, the British only do things in their own self-interest, okay? And Can I just say, you're ignoring the fact the United Kingdom and the EU pay a lot of money in development aid to Barbados and the Caribbean, 75 million over five years, that's pounds, just Britain alone, but the EU does as well. So we do make a big contribution. We don't need reparations on top of that. And do you, are you really happy with the victim culture where you're eff effectively enslaving people to hand out... Enslaving who? Enslaving who? That's rich coming from you. I'm not enslaving anybody. And actually, you, let's not... No, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Mr. White slaves as well. What about no, one point? No, no. What we're talking about are those that experienced chattel slavery. Arab slaves was was 
you know, the Arab Okay, I, I don't want to get too far off track. And like I said, when we speak over each other, it's, it's very difficult to hear sometimes. You're bringing in red herrings. Yeah, David, I mean, there is an issue here with the fact that the British government made the efforts and fulfilled the promise to pay back a debt to these slave owners themselves. This is actually true. That debt was finally finished, paid off, pay, being paid off in 2015. Yet, when it comes to paying back those who suffered the actual slavery and did the work, there is no compensation. So, is your is your argument then that the, the UK government, in other forms, is, is kind of paying compensation by giving aid to countries like Barbados? Because they also remember they're not taking a handout necessarily. This is supposed to be development aid that helps with the infrastructure of schools, hospitals. And, and things that the country needs for its development after that was hindered through the institution. Well, there's an argument. If they were in Africa now, would they be better off? I mean, you know, I mean, how are you going to calculate this? Um, I, I, you know, it, it gets very silly. That's the point. It's, it's how do you calculate reparations? Okay, let, let me just come back to William. Like I said, I want to give everybody equal time. William, I, I know you have some thoughts on what you've been hearing, so do go ahead. Well, you know, the statement that folks might have been better off uh, being enslaved and then having their descendants live in the United States or in the Caribbean nations, that having stayed in Africa is uh, is one of those comments you know, where the bigotry is How are you going to calculate it? David, let, let, just let me, William finish let for a second, me, please. Let me complete my comment. Please. Let me complete my comment. That's the type of statement in which the bigotry is dripping off of someone's words like perspiration. Let's keep in mind that the individuals who were coerced into migrating to the Americas did not choose to come to the Americas at their own volition. So it is not a matter of people who wanted to come to the United States or come to the Caribbean or come to South America being the folks who were imported. Instead, it was a situation in which a process of enslavement forced them to come. And so we have to start with that. We also have to consider the impact of imperialism and colonialism on the countries from which they originated. And so we have to construct a, a huge hyper uh, counterfactual to be able to, uh, to assess what the world would have been like in the absence of the slave trade, in the absence of imperialism and colonialism. And that's the story we have to tell for comparative purposes rather than talking about what Africa looks like today. Okay, I'll also tell you what. keep in mind, now here, no, there's, there's one more cru crucial point. The colonial powers systematically eliminated the African leaders who would have exercised the greatest degree of independence, starting with Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, with uh, Deben Kimathi in Kenya, with uh, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, with Prince Ragwasore in Burundi. And so as a consequence, when we look at the African nations that exist today, we have to keep in mind that those are nations that are in their present form as a consequence of the extermination of the leaders who would have provided the greatest degree of creativity and independence. Okay, Esther, uh, we, we're down to our last few minutes, and there's so many angles for this that I think we need to do some justice to. 
I'll come back to you with this, Esther, because I, I know you actually, even though you support reparations, you are taking some serious issue with the process to get reparations to the people that you think uh, deserve them. The problem is, would it not be simpler to allow these community claims to be made, to be the best way to get the results? Because if you start looking at these individual victims, you'll find people who are now so mixed in ethnically with even slave owners, uh, victims that can't actually prove their victims in a court of law. It could all get so diluted at that point and so tedious that, that no one wins. So should there be a simple as possible way to do this to make sure that something is paid out? Well, if we start with the notion of payment, that's really the wrong starting point for some of us. Reparations is about remedying wrong and harm. It includes restitution. Of course, compensation is there. But one of the key aspects of reparations are guarantees of non-repetition. And that is why in the UK, in the Stop the Mangamese campaign, we are calling for the establishment of the All-Party Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry for Truth and Reparatory Justice. Because we need to hear the voices of those who today are impacted because of the ignorance of, of some of the people in society who feel that this is all in history. And what we are also engaged in is hearing the solutions that communities are working on themselves that need to be amplified and supported and that the, re the restitution of our resources can go can towards I, actually I just, rebuilding communities. I've worked on trade deals, um, you know, with Latin America all around the world through the EU and the UK as well. That is a far better way of helping the Caribbean is fair trade. You know, the EU actually slammed the brakes on uh, sugar being imported into the UK and the EU, putting out massive tariffs and barriers. That is the way to go. And Africa is doing incredibly well, actually, economically. And I'm very much in favor of that. You know, I would say far better to spend time on free trade uh, and uh, that an enterprise and, and uh, investment. Uh, actually looking back hundreds of years and try to extract uh, reparations. I, I just don't think it's a good way to go. Let me get William in quickly with this, with this question, because, I mean, David's primary point in, in some senses was the fact that everyone, if you go back historically, especially hundreds of years, everyone will owe someone something, whether it's the, the Arabs in North Africa who've been asking the French for an apology for damage done in the Maghreb region, whether it's they owe the Berbers an apology. They, some argue that they destroyed the language, the culture of the indigenous populations there. There are some who even do research into the Carib population, the indigenous population of the Caribbean uh, that was taken yeah. out. So what do you say to that? How can you really determine who's a victim to whom? So I think it's a, it's a question of doing the research and also uh, saying that there may be multiple claims across the globe that many communities have for restitution, but that doesn't deny the claims that are being made in the present moment. I mean, consider the fact that Japanese Americans who were victimized during World War II did receive restitution from the U.S. government. But there was no attempt at that time to say, well, there are other communities in the United States, like black Americans, who merit restitution, mm -hmm. even though that was the case. And I don't think that the Japanese-American claim should have been disrupted 
by paying attention to claims that other communities had. It is time to meet the claim for the people who were subjected to slavery and colonialism across the globe. And any community that has a legitimate claim should come forward and make it. I don't have any, uh, any hesitation about saying that there are other places besides the Bahamas that have legitimate claims on the United Kingdom. Uh, okay. And so uh, I just say, come forth with those claims and let's, let's, let's resolve it. David, I can see you clearly disagree, but that will have to unfortunately be the final word for this edition of the Newsmakers. I'd like to thank all three of my panelists sincerely so much for being with us and our viewers, of course, for joining us as well. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and do be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm Andrea Sankey. We'll see you next time. help time and we must realize that the time is always right to do right that is what many believe is being weighed by california's first in the nation reparations task force you know, act as if it's impossible to fail we have to believe that we can make this change happen the group is examining counties like kern which has a history of being discriminatory towards african-american even today i'm mikhail armstrong and this is Special report for 17 News. The task force is studying how the state might calculate financial compensation for reparations to California descendants of enslaved African Americans. And I spoke to Kern County residents about the importance of this legislation and if approved with this to change for black Californians. Reparations are not uncommon. The German government paid more than $86 billion to Holocaust victims and their heirs. In America, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 gave more than 82,000 Japanese Americans $20,000 each in reparations and a formal apology by President Reagan for their internment during World War II. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race. However, for African Americans whose ancestors endured 250 years of slavery, there has been no headway regarding restitution except now at the state level. In order to grant reparations or even to consider them, the country has to come to terms with what slavery was and did. And that's something that we've never done as a country. I don't think reparations are something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. I think we're always a work in progress in this country, uh, but no one currently alive was responsible for that. We'd all like to think that it's in the past and just get over it and just move on. And it's not that simple. Almost knee-jerk reaction, particularly in white America, that if I allow my consciousness to reckon with racism and how this country has treated African Americans, 
that's going to somehow interfere with or disrupt how I see myself as a uh, as an American who comes from a nation that prides itself on liberty and justice for all. We are literally the only population of people who have never received any form of reparations whatsoever in any capacity. America was built on the back of slavery. It's always refreshing to make something right for both parties. The one that has done the wrong, but what they're saying and they're thinking is, well, I didn't commit that wrong. Others did. But you cannot excuse the ramifications of results of that wrong, especially if you find out through data and research that it still has a negative impact on these people on the African American. I think specifically here in California, it's often glossed over because it's not the Jim Crow South. And because it's not the Jim Crow South, people think that, oh, they don't need it there because slavery wasn't as bad here. But slavery was bad here. The American Civil War ends. Slavery is abolished. The Ku Klux Klan grows in numbers, including California. Reparations. Let's talk about it. Returns. Though California joined the Union as a free state in 1850, the state has a far more It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.